All right, it's 2.15, so we're going to get started. Um, we are sort of supposed to be being recorded, which is why we're sitting up here, but the, the humorous part of that is that we're really hoping this is going to be a full-on roundtable discussion, so there's no really good reason why we should be recorded more than any of you. So we may try, you know, just project when you speak, and, and maybe we'll turn the mic around or something, and we'll see how it works. It's not like it's live. Um, I'm Sarah Jenks. I'm the Director of Education and Leadership at Ford's Theater Society in Washington, D.C. We're the partner institution um, that works with the National Park Service to steward Ford's Theater, the place where Abraham Lincoln was shot. And I'm Toby Boyd. I'm the Chief Curatorial Officer at the Detroit Historical Society. And I'm Megan Wood. I'm the Director of Museum and Library Services at the Ohio History Connection. And we're going to let Toby tell you how we ended up here, and we hope that you all will uh, maybe sympathize, and even if you don't sympathize, you'll, you'll see us as models for your potential audience. So the, this session all started, well, actually, the session came about because of Facebook. So social media does get through things. But it started out prior to that when, um, you know, I'm living in Detroit, and I ended up going to see uh, Ben Folds with the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. And if you like Ben Folds and you can ever do that, it's like the most amazing night ever, right? It starts on time. And you were there, too. It starts on time. And it ends promptly because of, you know, it's Detroit, so there's unions. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but so I, I went, ended up going to that by myself because not a lot of folks in my social group are big symphony fans. And oh, I'm just, yeah. So, um, so I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm, and I'll tell you my age because I'm not, I mean, I'm 38 at the time. And, you know, I know they've got a young professionals group, so why don't I just join that? So I looked it up on the website, and they have a young professionals group. Um, called 3711 because that's their address uh, on Woodward Avenue where they're at and I was like oh great I'll join it and then I look and their age is like 18 to 37 <laughs> because their address is 3711 and that's really cute like really marketing cute but I'm like okay they can't really be all that serious so I call them and I'm like alright here's the deal I, I'm 38 can I join your group because I can't afford your regular theater and they're like no that is a very strict arbitrary rule that we have set. <laughs> And I was just completely beside myself. And, and they were like, well, you know, because they do, I'm not going to lie, the symphony does give away the farm. And this was a discussion I got with a friend who's, you know, though young professionals who give away a farm, they get free drink tickets and, like, $11 theater seats. And I was thinking to myself, like, well, I don't really care about the free drink tickets. And I can pay more than $11, but, you know, I, I want to be able to meet people, like-minded people, and get together and do things, right? So um, I was really angry about this. So I posted, you know, I posted all on Facebook about how mad I was to be arbitrarily cut out of a young professional group at 38 years old and um, <laughs> it started a dialogue where we started thinking about um, thinking about this and thinking about how this whole phenomenon of young professional groups and, and I don't know if I'm getting ahead of myself here but this whole phenomenon of having young professional groups in museums started about 10, 15 years ago, right? So the early adopters, the early participants in these young professional groups are now and they're getting close to 40, and they're going to be aging out. So my question that I asked the DIA was, well, what, what's next? What's my next step between young professionals and then being, Detroit you know. Symphony. Oh, yeah, sorry, the Detroit Symphony. What's the next step between being the young professional that ages out at 37 and the fact that I love the symphony, and they have their own parking garage, and the entire first floor is all handicapped? <laughs> because the rest of their, their next donor or, or participation level is to be their $1,000-plus individual donors. Like, 
where's where's this next letter? You know, we, we got all this shit. What's the next step in the um, ladder of engagement for people in their 40s before they're not they're, they can become um, the rich older donors? And basically what we felt like we found was that once you hit 37, there aren't any programs for you. There are only programs for your children. And so uh, that started a, a conversation about those of us who either don't have children or would sometimes on occasion like to do something without them. And so I say, my name is Megan Wood. I am a parent, but sometimes I'd like to just be treated as an adult. And so <laughs> it's kind of part of the dialogue that we got into and thought would be a great um, conversation to have, you know, that we're going to propose some things, talk about some things, but to have with other people too is what is that, how are you thinking about that um, Generation X audience, right? And we do we do talk a bit about Gen X because in this current moment in time, it's the Gen X generation that we're talking about here, age wise. It's not going to always be that way, but that you know, that's kind of what we're talking about. And that's why when I was doing some research to get some statistics, I found this quote that I love, and it's five years old. Um, but I love talking about you know, and, and this just rings true because everybody's talking about millennials and everybody's talking about baby boomers and us poor Gen Xers, wow, wow, wow. But um, <laughs> but I love that you know, thirty somethings have been shuttled off like Molly Ringwald herself. <laughs> You know, so some sort of camp limbo for demographic lepers. And I think that that's, you know, I, I, and I know that there are probably museums out there who are doing things to engage their middle-aged audiences, which is another reason why we want to, you know, I didn't want to make all these assumptions. That's why we want to talk about it today to see if there are uh, organizations doing that and how can we elevate this conversation. So um, we, we, we started looking at numbers. Um, and these are some of the things that, oh, this is not the right slide. It says parents' stats in red. That's all right. We'll, we'll go. That's all right. We'll yeah, but so there is a stat there, and I'll see if I can come up with it because I did look it up and found it in a really, it was a really interesting statistic. About, uh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, um, so you can take a look. I'm not going to read them aloud to you, but you begin to get a sense that there's a lot of people out there who are not, um, either not coupled or not parents or um, who are getting married later. And, uh, and this, the parents statistic, I, I think, I'm gonna get it somewhat wrong, so don't quote me, and we'll, we'll make sure that you have the actual, the, the correct stat um, in there. But um, the parents, um, I believe the statistic is that something like 50% of um, women in their mid-40s are not parents. And this was from like two or three years ago. Um, so at, so those, are, those are some basic demographic statistics. And then what you can get a sense of from looking at this thing about the friends generation, and those of you who follow Nina Simon on Museum 2.0, which if you don't, you should, um, her blog, um, you, you know also that People today want to do things with one another. They want to have social experiences in their cultural and heritage organizations. Now, that isn't always possible, but we can create those experiences around our events, right? But if we, so the question becomes, do we just create them at a massive discount for people who are under 30 
or 35 or 38 or what have you? Do we just create them for our major donors, which is largely what my organization does? And by major donors, in my case, sadly, they mean like over $2,500 donors. Um, you know, or how do we how do we do that? Um, so we wanted to present a couple of um, different examples of um, either young professional groups or some other um, some ideas. And so, do you want to talk about the National Archives? Yeah. Sure, founders? sure. The National Archives Foundation, um, which is in Washington D.C., um, runs a group called the Young Founders, and the Young Founders does not have an age limit. And if any of you know different than this, I've spent some time reading about it, but please feel free to pipe in. Um, they don't have an age limit, and they um, are very reasonably priced. They actually only ask you to give $60 a person annually. Um, and what's wonderful about the Young Founders is they invite you to all sorts of pre- and post-talk um, events. So there were Reception, there are receptions with all kinds of historians and lecturers, and, and then you come down to the event together. And um, they're really, um, they're not big events also. Um, so if you happen to be somebody who's interested in National archives -y kinds of things, and they have wonderful public programs, book talks and films and things, um, this is a great way to get to know other people who like to see that kind of stuff. And they have no age limit, you know, and, and obviously there's a very low entry point. Um, now, admittedly, they are a, they're a government agency, so their foundation is not trying to support the same kind, they're not trying to support all the operations of the institution, but it's a really interesting model. And they've been quite successful with getting people to join this group. All right. My example, and this is a group I haven't joined yet, but the more I, I learn about this group, the more I think this is the perfect type of model. Now, the Detroit, Detroit is has a very large Thanksgiving Day parade, and it's run by a nonprofit called the Parade Company. And if um, you know the channels that don't cover the Macy's Parade nationally, will cover the Detroit parts of the Detroit Parade. So, but you know everybody's watching the Macy's Parade. But anyway, part of what makes the Detroit Parade really unique is it's it's has this tradition since 1920s of these gigantic paper mache heads that they make, and every year they add another like Detroit celebrity, and so they call them the Big Heads. <laughs> and the Big Heads is. Um, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a professional organization. So for $250 a year, you can join the Big Heads and you get all of these benefits. You know, you get to go to the gala. You get to, they have all these special VIP events just for you as a Big Head member. And then during the parade, you don the big paper mache heads and you walk the parade route. And what I love about this, in the parade, the last two years, three years, the parade has, um, the parade route goes right by our museum, so we've hosted the breakfast for these folks. And there are folks who are, you know, in their 60s, and there are folks who literally at 6.30 in the morning pull the Winnebago up in front of the museum, set the bar out, and are wasted on Bloody Marys before 7.30 a.m., and then they walk for three miles with a big paper mache head on. <laughs> but what I love about it is that it's so inclusive that never would have occurred to them to put an age limit on there, but it's got enough meat on the bones that it can engage people of all different age levels. And I was thinking, this is the, and the price point, $250 a year as a mid-career professional. I can afford $250 to get the benefits out of this. So I, I, made, a, I made a few printouts of their their brochure to send around. Um, I don't have, I didn't have a ton because, you know, color copies are expensive and we're nonprofit. And I was uh, wondering at this point, has anybody here at their organization started a young um, professionals group? And if you want to 
if and you just speak to, to if it. you're willing to just share um, about it. I see a hand in the back. Yeah. Anybody else with the? I think I did. Do I see a hand over closer here? No. Has anyone else tried this or sort of looked into it at all? We, we tried to get something going because we had reached a point. I, it's something I've been wanting to do for a long time. Melissa, I'm sorry. We can just say where you're from. Oh, sorry. I'm Melissa Pricer. I'm the executive <coughs> director at Dallas Heritage Village. Before that, I was the educator, so I had to wear my educator hat for a change. Uh, Anyway, we, it's something I've been wanting to do for a long time because here I was, single in my 20s. I know there are other history nerds out there in the world, and how else are we going to come together and share our love for history um, and possibly around drinking? Um, <laughs> anyway, so we had, but I knew that was something that was going to have to be not just staff-led, that we would probably need some assistance, and I wanted it to be a combination of a membership thing, but also maybe to do some volunteer work at the museum and also the social aspects so it would have the three prongs. And we had gotten to a point on our board where we had multiple board members under the age of 40. I was like, huh, maybe one of these lovely board members that is you know, under the age of 40 will want to help steward that. And so we had a couple of happy hours last year, and no one was really quite willing to take the lead on the volunteer side of things to assist staff, and then we got really busy, and it is just there. So I think if we tried again, I mean, our first happy hour, um, we were at a historic building, and we had like 20 or 25 people show up, which I took as a success, and they weren't all people that we already knew. It wasn't just staff and a couple of board members. There were a few, like, there was, there was children of older board members, which was kind of neat. Um, so that's where we are. Um, I was hoping my development development manager would kind of take that and run with it, and she really didn't. But now she doesn't work for us anymore, so maybe <laughs> the new person will. Um, so anyway, that's kind of our background. So you know, we kind of had a model in our head, and then we just weren't able to pursue. But part of the reason why I am here also is our neighborhood that the museum is located in is going through massive redevelopment. And very soon there's going to be residential units across the street from the museum. So and we're the largest green space in the downtown Dallas area, and we already offer a neighborhood membership for after-hours access to our grounds. People can walk the dogs or run or whatever. So I'm hoping that maybe the combination of our existing neighborhood membership and this growing... Anyway, so I'm just soaking up, but that's kind of where we are as an I think that you have an interesting point here, which is that for those of us who are in urban settings, um, in a sense, we have an opportunity to capture that those neighbors, often who are people who don't have families, actually, because you're less likely to be trying to raise a family downtown 
gross generalization, but it based in some reality. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to say nobody's doing it. Um, and, and this other question, for us, certainly, we don't have any really young board members, which is something that's constantly frustrating to me, but this is part of the reason why. If you, I mean, not, are, is anybody here actually in development? Sort of, okay, like some of the executive directors. Because I was thinking about this question of the ladder of engagement. You know, I mean, that's something that we don't tend to talk about as much um, in programs, but it's really important in um, development. So in development, they talk about the ladder of engagement all the time. Well, there's a big missing, there's a big gap. There are rungs missing on this ladder. So. I think too, and, and I want to talk, go back to the Indiana example, which by the way, I think the name is really clever because you got in, you know, in crowd Indiana. But I'm, but I like puns. Like but uh, <laughs> you talked about the problem with getting Gen Xers, and I think this is one of the things that we kind of landed on. It's the last question at the bottom of the slide is that, you know, my experience with the DSL was like, no, I don't, I, you know, I am a Generation X. I am no longer 38, so I'm older than that now. And, um, <laughs> and I was like, you know, I don't really want to, like, when I get together, what, what will attract me is not getting drunk. Like, I don't necessarily, I mean, don't get me wrong, everybody likes me. But I don't necessarily need that for our cultural experience anymore. So at one point, you know, and I think, I don't know if you were going to talk about the Emerging Museum Professionals, how we had talked a little bit about, like, going to those events and realizing, oh, I guess I'm, I guess I've emerged, yeah. <laughs> you know, and so, like, maybe the programming has to be a little different to engage folks like that. And, and, but I think there is truth. Like, we in Detroit, we have the Detroit 313, which is our young professionals group, which, fortunately, I was talking to our development director, and it does go up to 45, but it depends on who on our board is leading it and how old they are. But I think that's such an interesting <laughs> question, because as so. somebody who's in my early 40s, like, yeah. I don't think of myself as really middle-aged, although by many, most standards, I probably yeah. am. But, um, but also, you know, I don't really think of myself as a young professional. So why do we feel obligated to, you know, because just because that's what everybody calls these groups, we feel like we have to be like, oh, it's the young professionals group. Well, no, not really. It's just like the cool kids. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. Like one of the things that drives me crazy is why are they young professionals? Because that turns off a whole yes. group of people right there with the word professional. Yeah. It's really just young people. <laughs>
are talking about it and they own it. And I just wonder, does, are they a, is there another way to tap into that? Um, not necessarily to take away from, say, the Rotary's mission, but right. you know, it's very, very different. Rotary is very different than my experience with the Elks or the IOOF. You know, mm -hmm. That tends to be more 75 and up, and they do just want to drink beer at that point. So, <laughs> city that has a large group has a Yelp representative, 
House Representative there, she has access to 25,000 emails. And so what she, does, what she does is that she her job is to create opportunities and access for her members. There's elite members, and then there's the regular yelpers. So her job is to work with bars, restaurants, breweries, distilleries, food trucks, museums, and other things to come up with cool stuff to do. So when I, I just started my job in June, that was one of my first emails was to Joelle to say, I'm in town, work with Yelp in the past, I'd love to work with you to try to put something together, knowing that she already has her before group of people that will follow her. And if Joelle puts her seal of approval on it, typically it means it's going to be something really fun. So in Milwaukee, when I was at the Milwaukee County Historical Society, we did two events with them, and they were our two most successful events, particularly because we created something that no, nobody else in the city could do at that particular time, which was unique to our building and unique to our museum, but it was also working with, again, the food vendors, with, with distilleries, with beer, doing behind-the-scenes tours, and doing, you can still do the museum stuff, but you can also do the fun stuff, too. We had, you know, a weird uh, steampunk band and all kinds of other stuff, but again, it was, something that was unique. So Yelp is a really good option if you're looking to do something like this. And again, it's for, for us, it was, we just wanted the fun, we just wanted people in the building, period. But we also wanted the sort of young, this younger audience, that, and I think whoever says thing about the young professional thing, right? Um, young, younger people that are looking for something to do, that are looking for something unique, and then helping to provide that. How do you find your Yelp representative? It very, I actually went through my old uh, contact in Milwaukee and just asked. But so what's Joelle's time, email? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what's Joelle's email? Yeah. Well, I'll start with her. <laughs> so basically you can go to each, if there's a Yelp representative in your city, they will have their own website where they post their own things. So while they encourage their members to post reviews of restaurants and, and everything that they do, they're doing the same thing. They're blogging. They sometimes will have their own blogs and so they're pretty easy to find, um, and so, and especially if you know somebody else in your area that has the Yelp sticker in, in their museum or in your historical society, ask them who they work with too. So like the marketing and the, that stuff you do on the website, it tends to be centralized or at least regionalized, and they're sort of our hands off on the data on the actual events that happen in the city. But again, larger larger areas will have Yelp representatives, and they're really they're really on their game. There was a hand up. Yeah, I, um, one of the things that struck me and, and it kind of comment back here kind of hit me again that you couldn't get anybody to stay in downtown. I live in a, a small upstate New York City, and we are the 25,000 people. We're the big town. We're the big city that everybody comes to. Elmira. Mm -hmm. So there's college here. Yeah. We're Cooper Town for six years. Oh, okay. And we send lots of people over there. Um, at 5 o'clock, we're done. Back at 3.30, we're done. Um, and so it's, it's raised a, an issue that my staff and I have talked about in terms of people don't want to stay in Elmira after 5 o'clock. There's not really a lot of downtown options. Um, they're going somewhere else. And it raises the issue for us, shouldn't we then also be going somewhere else? Shouldn't we not be glued to just our building just our space, you know, and then there's partners out there and, and doing just even a, a some quick looking across the internet, you know, museums out there doing 
you know, Tuesday night talks at the bar and you know, doing things obviously outside the traditional museum space. And so it's, it's a conversation that has begun in my space about what else and where else we might do. Is anyone else doing that? Does anyone speak to that? History Pub. History Pub? Yeah. Mm -hmm. We've done it a few times and had good success. For, for the same reason, because I'm in that community that the sidewalk. So mm -hmm. we're just like, okay, we're just going to go to the bar where they're going. Yes. I mean, they're, yeah, they're, they're going somewhere, they're hanging out somewhere, they're, they're gathering somewhere. Let's go there. I'll say that personally, up until about five years ago, Detroit had the same problem. Now everybody comes to Detroit after mm -hmm. five o'clock, and I think you all should too next year at AA Lift. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, okay, my point is there is a side group through Meetup called the Detroit Drunken Historical Society, and when we first got wind of it, we're like, should we say something? Because that's just one word off from the Detroit Historical Society, which we are. Are we comfortable with this? And like, our curators participate? But that's basically there. It's a group of you know uh, amateur historians that put this together, and they go to bars all over the region, and they'll bring in our curators. will go and lead talks, and that's been a very successful model. It sounds very similar to this, where you go to a suburban location, and then you still get the history out there. And people can, can you describe what you mean by this? Like, are you grabbing a karaoke mic? Or Traditional lectures, literally. They, this, this group of people are like, yes, we want your, your, your curator to come and tell us about the French uh, fur trade in Detroit. And so, you know, and you're like, okay. So they rent out a room in the bar, and he does his whole spiel with the PowerPoint, and everybody drinks beer, and then they all talk about it. Somebody. There's something similar, but now we actually found that partnering with our libraries helped us even more because it gets good, you know, wider. And I'm in a very small suburb right outside of Chicago, and you would think the suburb of Chicago, this age group, but it's not like that. We have more seniors there. Um, but now we've even started the, I say we, but it's really just me. Um, <laughs> I am doing a new oral history. We're kind of taking it to the next level, which, you know, maybe some people see it as unethical, but, for example, I have, I've never had a really good, solid history in my police department. So somehow they, somebody came in, long story short, donated a ton of stuff, like almost a half of the semi-truck worth of police items, signs, things that they've got in their basement, a history order. And now he's reached out to some of his former union members and we're going to meet at the local pub. And actually they're allowing us to video it, so we're going to start doing oral histories at the local bars. That is really cool. <laughs> we'll see. I mean, struggle with this at a couple of institutions where I've worked and trying to sustain one and make one or make a program like this. Like my question to you and all of you is one of sustainability. It's, it's knowing what's, 
being for a part, we're good at our museum engaging in <coughs> cultural programs and parties and receptions. We work in a short site and we use it in certain ways. But it seems to me that what we're talking about for a sustained program like that, you're either looking at it as a development function where you're trying to assert and trying to upsell them into something else and trying to engage them with the hopes that they will become supporters as they as their earned income grows and as their disposable income grows and as they get more engaged in the community, they yeah, will become trustees. So at one yeah. track you're trying to nurture your future uh, patrons. At the other side of it is that mission, that content thing. Mm -hmm. Surprised me a little bit, Tony, when you talked about you know, this one your lecture. I think one of the things that, well, I mean, as a sort of site, I'm beginning for history of the box museums, we're at a little bit of a disadvantage because I think we lose, I don't want to offend anybody, but I think we lose the cool factor of an art museum where you can feel kind of, you can drink wine and there's art and you can feel the notion to be in one big culture for, you know, 20 bucks a mission. But, so it seems to me that we have to decide when you're setting up the programs, you've got to decide what is the end game for mm -hmm. how do you measure success? Is it is it to make a lot of money twenty years from now? Right. How are we tracking that? Or so is it about developing delivering our mission, delivering our content so people understand our museum better? Because we've gone down the track of putting on parties for thirty somethings, but then they don't come back when they happens. So we spend a lot of staff resources adding mm -hmm. yet another so one of the things that we found um, at Ford's, and this tends to be more to do with our theatrical programming, so it's a little different, but it's related, is that um, is that we are um, we're better off when we have season of events because people then see the it's the whole question of seeing the value of membership or seeing the value of giving that they. Um, so that if they know that they can continue to see their like events for them over the course of the year, it's the one-offs that throw that get you know people don't feel connected. And I don't know if that's if you guys have been doing a season of things and then the people just only go to those things and they don't come to anything else, or is that what you mean by? It's about targeting looking for an event that specifically targets this a demographic, right? And what is something for them? Mm -hmm. You don't sustain something for them right. over and over. Or if you, uh, we've had not had a lot of success of them cross-pollinating and getting into the other things right. we do, mm -hmm. they just do that. So it just adds, it doesn't help, it doesn't sort of broaden our base. It just creates another niche audience that we're serving. Kind of I think so. that's where the program development comes in. And I think, I mean, you bring up a really good point because I want to say, Yes, to both like to use it's not really an either or it's like yes we want to find ways to engage these folks for our future sustainability you know but we want to do so in a way to talk about you know that's that's not like you know marketing and so you know it's interesting that we chose to do this because none of us are in the development or administration side we're all educators and programmers you know and somehow you have to measure the incremental success too otherwise mm -hmm. you just kind of hoping that happens and it could very well yeah. happen but somehow you've got to come and I, I think okay. what I would maybe propose to that is um, that, and I think that this kind of came out in sort of our personal experience was like there was this whole young professional movement and then there's kind of this aging out and then there's a lack of engagement. So maybe what the, if that's not working, maybe what it is, it's about thinking about uh, a larger segment of an audience that many of us probably aren't getting that ranges anywhere from 25 to whatever, um, 
that is a different kind of engagement that maybe isn't parties, right? That it's more programmatic, it's a deeper level. And so I think that's kind of what we were starting to think that might be the essential question around this is that um, maybe that's not the right approach because then you are doing that. You're creating a cohort of people and then maybe they're not coming back. And I know you've had your hand up for a while, so. That actually segues well into what I wanted to, to mention is that that, that demographic of 35 to 55, I don't know if that's entirely, it should be entirely accurate because I'm technically, I'm in the millennial generation, generation Y, whatever you want to call it, but I'm towards the, the older end of things. I would have nothing in common with someone who's considered my generation 10 years younger than me or eight years younger than me and probably wouldn't be interested in the same events. I would probably have more in common with the younger end of the Generation X. And I would venture to guess that it's the older end of the Generation X might not have the same interests in common with the younger end. And so perhaps when we have too big of a swap for the demographic, maybe we need to narrow it into smaller segments, either age or particular interest, and, and not have one template, but really case by case for each community and more and I think we also wanted to encourage thinking of a certain age group as just being parents because I think we're seeing that a big shift in that um, and I don't know if it'll swing back um, but I think you know we're seeing that that we can't just make the assumption that if we have children's programming then we're bringing people of this age in and so if we gave them a young professionals group and we have parent programs for children, and then we hope they'll come back and volunteer when they're retired. Um, you know, are we really thinking about engagement across our what may be a very likely to be engaged audience that may actually volunteer? So, I think just one more thing I want to say to your point is I think you're right, and one thing that um, that I know we're all thinking, but nobody has vocalized yet, and that is uh, needs assessment and evaluation yes. and getting out on your community and finding out. And I and I'm totally like loving the fact that everybody's here, like, well, that will work in your and that also speaks to what you're saying. I and mean, your your environment, like you know, my issue with the 37 year old age gap is that is for that exact same thing. You know, on the younger end of Generation X, but I like maybe age isn't the right metric. But we need to talk to find out. I saw some hands. Yeah, here. One of the things I was going to say. So my institution, we're free, so I'm not charging for anything. And one of the things that I found works really well with this age group are documentaries. Mm -hmm. Documentaries have worked really well with us. We partner with a few different people, but one of the biggest ones is Independent Lens. And they will partner with anyone. So all you do is call them. You get the documentaries a month before they're shown on television. Or on television and those programs really do attract this age group. Um, so it's a free program um, for you because you're not paying for the documentaries. And I think they have at least 200, maybe a little less, um, organizations around the country that help shows themselves. It's an easy program to do. I think they're independent I mean, lens. Yeah. Independent yeah. lens. Was there a hand right behind there? Yeah, but I can tell. We'll move over to. Yeah. One, one thing that um, I noticed when we were talking is that every parent is not the parent of a seven-year-old. So right. programming is not. So there is a really huge gap of tween young teenagers when they're still sort of hanging out, which could very easily coincide with people that want something cool to do 
but don't necessarily need a lot of alcohol around. So I, I didn't think of it as we were talking, but that might be another type of programming that brings in parents and teens, so that the parents can do the kind of parenting in an adult way, but the teens have something that they can do, I don't know, asking the question. Right. Um, yeah. Wait, there was I'm sorry, I should, I'm going to stop. I'm not going to call it. <laughs> we just had somebody in the middle who's had their hand up for a while. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, well, I was just, you know, I do work in fundraising. A lot of it is about relationship building. And, um, you know, all of these people have connections. And so they tend to want to do things, you know, with like-minded people and build those relationships and really um, engage each other. And I think part of it is not losing fact of losing sight of individual relationship building, you know, and making sure that when you do have a volunteer or a visitor or somebody that becomes engaged that you make it a personal relationship as much as possible um, because they do attract other people and can be um, very vocal and, and be advocates. And when it comes to fundraising, you know, the kind of the old principle is people give to people. And so a lot of times if they have those relationships built, you know, you they can bring the others along with them. Yeah, that's that's how we kind of target a lot of our programming is I was at a museum before where we had this young professional person and I absolutely hated it because it's fiber when I do This is just a, a group of, you know, well-deserved kids that did what they wanted to. And uh, I'm glad I got out of there. We came, I came to a smaller historical institution and everything, every way that we brand our, our programming is we always, you know, we're doing this, we do this, and we do it for learners of all ages. Mm. And so we don't really tag age groups. Mm. This is for a young professional group. This, you know, we do a family day. It's intergenerational. Um, you know, if you look at your kids' programming uh, and, you, and you see the, the moms and the kids, you ever notice how, like, the mom or the dad, like, takes over the art project and then they're doing it? Yes. We provide extra materials here, parents. You do make your own. Um, so they're not taking over their kids' project, but it's we try to do a lot of intergenerational stuff, and you know, so playing off the, the relationship-based thing, you know, we, we started a history happy hour that we do uh, the third Thursday of the month, and it's 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 drinks and it's hands-on history programming, and we did one, um, you know, we told our board, hey, we're going to launch this program, you guys need to come out and bring your people, and so we can get this thing launched. And they did such a great job of that. And now it's something that people look forward to. We don't have to advertise for it because it's such a fun time. Alcohol and hands-on activities, how can you miss? Um, and so it's got a great following, and, and uh, it's just really enjoyable. Can you give an example? Yeah, so last, uh, the last one that we did was the history of the river. And so we're like on the, in the Tennessee and the High Watson River where we're at in Cleveland, Tennessee. And um, we had this uh, person from TVA come in, and she literally built a river in the room out of like all this junk that she brought with her. And um, and so the people in the audience, they had to like place the stuff, and it was a circus. It was really fun. <laughs> but then you know they learned about the river uh, and then all the cities that it needs and how it goes up and down and how it contributes to transportation, the economy, and habitats and things like that. Um, the next one we have coming up, I'm very excited about. We're partnering with the Red Cross, and it's titled How to Survive a Zombie Apocalypse or 
um, survival tips for a disaster in our community. And so, uh, so we're partnering with the Red Cross on that, and they're going to come in and do a program. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just was curious, who's the person who said you do a trivia night? Okay, I just, I want to talk logistics with you. <laughs> I, just, I couldn't see the face in the crowd. So. I know I'm talking too much, but whatever. Um, okay, I, have, I, have, I have a question because I've seen some people, I think, attack this through membership programs that are like a menu, like a choose your own adventure membership. So it's like, I'm a member who likes to do a happy hour and do these social events, and I'm going to sign up for the happy hour membership. I'm a member who likes to be in the noonday lecture club. Right? And they kind of have, let's say, like four different tracks, or maybe one's more of a family track, and, you know. Um, and they do that so that people see what they want in the institution, but it's not age-based. And I've heard of a couple of places doing this, but I'm wondering if anybody here is doing that, and whether that method of kind of getting at these different things has been I will, I will add something to that. The last institution I was at, they will remain nameless. But they had a lot of add-on type things that were kind of like that. You know, if you like to do this, add this to your membership. You know, at the end of the day, I don't think people want a lot of choices. You know, there's a lot of studies that, that tell you that. Um, and, and then on top of that, we're creating so much dang work for our staff. You know, and I've got five people, and I don't have time to, you know, oh, so and so needs this and this and this and this and this, and you got to do that for 500 people. Um, so we just try to keep it simple and just, you know, where it comes down to us, like pinpointing, like, you know, for the happy hour, when we do our advertising, like, we do, like, the Yelp sponsored ads, or we'll do the Facebook sponsored Like, we go meet them as far as marketing where they're at. But, I mean, we've got, like, a 78-year-old that comes to History Happy Hour. She doesn't miss a beat. She's at every, every third Thursday, and she loves the heck out of it. Um, do, do any of you know the Peabody Essex Museum's Big Draw? And I don't know if other people have done the Big Draw also. You do a Big yeah. Draw? Because I went, I just happened to attend that. <laughs> Big draw, and as a grown up, I was like mesmerized by it, and I wanted to come back. What is it? Can you tell us about the best attended event? I don't know how it. Can you stand up? Yeah. Thanks. Um, I actually wasn't, I missed it by two weeks last year, but I'm involved in this year. So we have a Friday and a Saturday where we do drawing based programming, and I think it started in England with a group that thought about the idea that as kids we're encouraged to draw all the time, and then as adults, people are like, oh, well, if you can't draw, just don't. Um, but the drawing is really fun, even if you're terrible at it. So, like, one thing that we did was we laid out a huge, gridded Indiana, like the size of this room, and let people draw their own paper on it and lay them out on it. So they just created this big kind of chaotic mural. Um, we're bringing in, I think, a glass blower this year. We've got um, ornament making since in November, and so we've procured some ceramic ornaments for people to draw on. They're also in the shape of um, we do have on Saturday after we close the museum, the event still goes, and then we bring in a couple breweries. Stacy was there for the <laughs> <laughs> um, But I think that it's definitely been one of our better. We do.
Um, you, you talked about two different models as far as when you've served, uh, what time you've had it. So I was curious, what has everybody found time-wise or days of the week that work for the audience of adults? Thursday night, 6 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> Friday night, 6 p.m. Yeah. I have a jazzy night. So it's really interesting. That's my biggest part. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Actually, I have to say the art museum events that I've been to, like the jazz nights, I mean, DC there's this thing called Jazz in the Sculpture Garden that I actually had to stop going to because it's so packed that it's unpleasant. Like somebody needs to develop a parallel event. Um, and there is a, there's a desire, I think people want this stuff if it's done right, and it's just a question of figuring out how to do it right. Whether it's going to the people or yeah, appear. Oh, sorry, sorry. You go. Sorry. Not to sound negative about this, but there is a local historical society by name who has some historic homes, and for several decades they were running psychic nights. And it was very popular, it brought people in, but now we're seeing the effects just where I'm at that now it's become known as the haunted area, and this is how they're making their money. So now it's turning off people so much and people are focusing more on folklore rather than history of this week. So it was a former state senator's home. So now, you know what I've done psychic nights, they're great, they bring in the younger crowds, but I don't, as we've done fun as tours, you know, cemetery walks are huge now, people like a little bit of history, not around Halloween either, we do it at off times, but that's just kind of a, an example of when you really start doing these events and now people are getting kind of negative connotation. Go ahead. Um, I think something that keeps coming up that I think a lot of us are trying at history museums in particular are these um, happy hours and after hours and let's get together and party and let's have a social thing like the Isabella Gardner does that great uh, Gardner night or garden in the nighttime. I don't know. Anyway, so I'm really interested in in alternatives to getting together to drink with each other. Mm -hmm. um, because I think that that's sort of like a safety blanket for some. That, that sounds very really harsh. It's not what I mean. It's a, it, it's a good go-to core kind of thing to do. Um, we started, well, I, so I wanted to do something different for that age group. Um, so I pushed for our history museum to be the local chapter of something called Creative Mornings, which is a program that um, meets once a month for the creative community and it has like a half an hour of a breakfast in the morning at nine or eight or whatever and then has a half hour lecture by someone in the creative community that's like doing full work in your community and I was able to pitch that for our CEO saying you know people who are doing creative interesting work now are the stories that we're going to be telling in the future, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. these should be like the people that we're bringing in and saying, this is your house too, these are your stories too, dot, dot, dot. So I'm curious if there are other examples of sort of morning programs or alternatives to the happy hours that are pulling people in and building kind of a community. We're a small, I'm in Santa Fe, we're like a small um, so city. One of our most successful new programs is, um, we only do it once a year, we call it Sunday Social, and it's a Sunday afternoon. We have a band that plays 1920s music in our bandstand, if it's not raining, it's <coughs> rain. 
Um, the thing that's amazing about it is people show up in 1920s clothing, and we do Charleston lessons and Wolverine picnics, and they just hang out. Um, the first year we did it, we had about, and of course the band that we use has a following, so that's helpful. But we had about 600 people show up. Uh, we have a lot of acreage, so that's not a big deal. The thing that was so surprising is so many of our events have a family focus. And this event, we had like maybe 35 kids, and everybody else was adults, and it, they were all that sweet spot. So, you know, that's become an annual event. There's no alcohol. It's a Sunday afternoon, which is great. People like to dress up. So I think maybe some other alternatives to think about is opportunities for people to be creative in some way, and maybe through store clothing, and use those you don't need alcohol for you to Yeah. <laughs> um, so one of the events that we are doing this year that um, has had an incredible response from the community is called, um, we, have a, we have a cemetery in Janesville, that, Janesville, Wisconsin, where I'm from, um, that's our largest cemetery, it's called Oak Hill Cemetery. So we're doing an event called The Chill at Oak Hill, and it's supposed to get that sort of that makes it certain that we, we advertise it that it's not a haunted experience, so they're not going there to get kind of a tacky haunted thing. Um, they're learning about historical figures in our community and, and touring the graveyard. Um, we, I, if I put something up on our Facebook, a good event will get maybe tw 12 people that say they're going. We have more people, but we don't have a ton of people that kind of respond to the event invitations on Facebook. Overnight, this one got 570 were goings. And we can accommodate 80 people. <laughs> so I literally had to, in a panic, call the lady who's doing the event and was like, can you please add on days? Because we have people that are, that are we had people call and they were yelling at us like, what do you mean we can't sign up for this event ahead of time? We're like, this is a first come, first tour cemetery. First come, first serve cemetery tour. So come early. How early? Not an hour. Because we have 700 people that want to come. Um, but. It was a really, one thing that really caught me was that it's being held in an, on a Wednesday evening. And with a Wednesday evening and a Thursday evening, because we were able to add on one more day, um, and that it's not, it kind of brings in that kind of Halloween fall feel, but it's not haunted, and it's still history relevant. So it, it kind of had all of that at play, but I was, I was very pleasantly surprised to see the community, my, my community, I've come from a, a small kind of blue collar farm farm town, so so for them to, to interact that much with a Facebook event was sort of a big deal, especially on a weeknight. Got first back here, and then we'll come forward and back. Somebody up there mentioned oh. a line becoming a chapter of something. Uh, I forget what you said. Um, uh, creative morning. Creative morning. <laughs> um, and I, there might be issues. Slide moves, you move. And it's, what's cool about it is, is that it's uh, there's an international organization that, is, uh, that sort of oversees this thing. And typically, there's only one chapter per city. Um, in that it's cost on our side around the city in Madison. It's actually uh, a group that's a group tech group. But a lot of times, they do events <coughs> four times, six times a year, but they're always looking for content. And a lot of times, they're also looking for venues. But if there isn't one of those, 
opportunities, it might be a good opportunity because one of the things that I'm sort of gleaned, again, Madison is a weird place, but um, for those of you that have been there, um, but it's, there's this, there's not only a desire to learn being a university town, but there's also a desire to teach, there's that desire to share, and that's what Pachaka Chow does, it allows the person to share what they know, to share what they love, which kind of, somebody was talking about history club, and that's like a trivia thing, so the next iteration of that is something that Laura Madison is called Bird Night, which is similar to Pachaka Chow, but it's also giving people a chance to share their expertise about the same thing, so it's like large audiences. So, and it's everything from Victorian underwear to, you know, the B-sides of the Misfits or whatever else. Like, it is far and wide, but it's really sort of unique opportunities, again, for change of ideas, conversation, and learning, but also solutions, too. I think folks like to feel like they're doing more than just consuming what they're actually providing. Can I piggyback off of what you were saying? Um, being that I'm also so we do love our beer. We're also doing a, a tap or a, or a bar thing. We're, we're, I'm from the Tallman House, so we're calling it Tallman on Tap. And rather than it being a trivia night, we're doing more of like a story-themed thing. We're, um, in, the, in March, we're hoping to get um, to go to a historic kind of Irish pub or a very Irish community. And um, we want to tell stories of the immigrants from Ireland that came to Janesville and kind of created Janesville. Um, so it's just another example of what you can do to utilize Pubs are our, our cultural community center. That's, that's really what pubs are in, 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 in communities. Um, it's a place for people to unwind and really communicate with each other. So it's a way to do it without doing trivia, without necessarily having it be a frat house party. Bar. So back here. Yes, yeah, yeah. Okay. I was going to say, and I'm glad you brought that up, because I meant to mention that we do not have alcohol at 99% of our programs because I can't afford the bar. <laughs> we have an in-house caterer that even with a cash bar, I'm spending $1,200, which I'm not going to do. Yeah. And so I don't think alcohol really should be the impetus. I think it is for the 20-somethings, but I think when you're looking, you know, over 35, you're not really going to get drunk. And so I think looking at those Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday nights. The other thing is we don't do programs on Fridays and Saturday nights, because that's wedding night. Mm -hmm. So our venue is being used for weddings. And mm -hmm. So I think when you're looking at those other days, the week, people aren't out trying to get drunk. Just real quick, I want to talk about these other ideas, something that's been popping in my head, because I just heard about it yesterday, and I'm just the past year, because it's not even my idea, but the Fraser History Museum that hopefully many of us visited last night, um, we were talking to their manager of public programs, Jody Lewis, and they've reinvented the type of adult programs they do that are super low budget and lower calorie, and as they will do uh, once a month a date night, which I think is very compelling, especially for the parents that want to have an opportunity to go out where they'll, it's always usually based around a private tour that's, you know, limited number, tour of their upcoming exhibit, and they had one on something about France. Mm -hmm. So it was dinner, a tour of the exhibit, and then a front, a, lesson in basic French or something. So there's a hands-on component, uh, it's a museum based, and I, I was just been like thinking about it. She showed the budget, and it's like $1,500 is the expenses, and if they sell tickets for 15 bucks, they can break even or even make a few bucks. And I thought, oh, I'm gonna be contemplating that. And it doesn't necessarily need alcohol, but it's just another offering for a different clientele. So I just throw that out there. If you wanna reach out to her, she'd be glad to tell you more about it, but I thought that was cool. Yeah. I just wanna mention a program we've started um, like so many other historic sites, history museums, we had a lecture series, and every lecture you saw one less person and one less person, <laughs> so there was only one person, yes. and you know, that was not my board members. <laughs> um, 
So anyway, we, we completely dumped the lecture series, and we now do a program we call History They Didn't Teach You in School. And everybody, you know, you, you, there's all these little tidbits that come up when you're doing research for your exhibits, or you know, you're doing your own research or whatever, and you're, you hear these stories about your town. Oh, so-and-so, the, the town father, well, he really was a scoundrel, and here's the stories. And so it's... The series is the history they didn't teach you. We do it three times a year. And then it's around a theme. So we've done scandal as a theme. We've done fight as a theme. And we play with these themes. And then we also present it with a bit of slapstick, a bit of silliness. So it's well-researched history. But it's, it's bits of history that we were researching and finding anyway. It's not new research we had to go and do for this program. Um, we do it, like I said, we do it with some silliness and some fun. We find different ways to tell these stories. Um, we charge five bucks a person. We couldn't get people to come to our free lectures, but we charge five bucks a person and we sell out our tours. And we're, we're getting $200. We do it one night. We do it on a, a Thursday night. We get make 200 bucks that night. We spend about $150 because we give a few things away and, and make the participants do a few things. But it, it just because we've just changed, we don't call it a lecture anymore, and we we do a few little silly things, and it's all the staff, we all, you know, and we get a whole range. We get children to 75 years old. There's somebody who hasn't spoken yet that would like to say a few things. we got about 10 minutes left in this session. Mark. Just to pile on with another idea, I guess, and a non-alcohol idea, uh, you know, bicycling tourists growing in popularity and uh, there's excellent opportunities for different neighborhoods near your cities or uh, different historic sites or whatnot. Um, and there's I would venture against that if you're in any kind of decent sized uh, city there's probably some kind of club or something that's already established and would make a great partner to help you with the logistics and the, the technical aspect of pulling something like that off. My friend Nick Hoffman is not here but he's had tremendous can I, I just want to bring up what Dave, um, David was talking about sustainability. And before we're done, I, we can do a couple of other things, but I want to come back to that because I think that's really central to all of the stuff that we're talking about. So, you know, I know there were some other hands.
that we have too many people to bring more food. And so it's something that we're trying to do now in my new organization. Um, they've been doing Sunday lectures once a month um, on a Sunday. And the six people were coming, it was the same six people. So we're trying to switch it up. And if you do it during lunchtime, sometimes you can get the people who are nearby to take their lunch break and come, or you have stay-at-home parents, or you have people who are retired, or get a mix of people. We had homeschool groups come to the last one we did, and it was a topic on maps. And so it was it was a history-based program, but it wasn't specific to our location, and it we had more people than we had if any of the other programs we had done. So. so I think a thread that I keep, we're getting closer to the end, a thread that I kind of keep hearing is, um, creatively engaging, like, uh, intentionally creatively engaging adults in the content that we're really good at doing. And I think many of us have gone through phases where, like, old lecture series are dying, and so now, like, I'm definitely lecture shy. You know, somebody talks about doing a lecture, anything that looks like a lecture, I get scared, but there are examples out there um, of that kind of content being <coughs> consumed. Um, so thinking about engaging grown-ups through sort of other creative strategies around content like biking or um, and maybe doesn't have to have alcohol um, and also I think something that hasn't come up um, but it's just something I put out there for thought as we get to the close is um, the strategies on um, if you have in your museum floor or in your historic site um, where maybe it's not special programming, but it's kind of like your daily ongoing programming and engagement. Um, thinking this way too about um, about specifically this slice of the audience and, and what is maybe creative engagement around our historical content that we can be doing maybe in a more sustainable way on a daily basis. That's just something I was thinking of as we were sitting here. So that was kind of my some of my takeaways. And I think if we can do this in a way that ties closely our programming and our deliverables tied to our mission, then we are doing what we need to do to ensure our organization is sustainable. I think that's part of the problem with the young professionals group is all we're doing is throwing parties for them, but how does that engage them with our mission and what we, you know, our core content? So let's find a way to try to marry them both, you know, get them invested by giving them a really cool experience, you know, that, that I that helps them see why our, our institutions are critical. And if you decide that this is the audience and the strategy for you, right, there's always that. We didn't really talk about that, but as you, you know, in target audience engagement, is this the right strategy for you? And we're just maybe proposing this maybe becoming a bigger segment of the population. I don't know. We'll see how, how things go as um, Gen Y, millennial generation, and then the next generation, you know, their habits in becoming parents and, and whether or not, you know, getting married. So, I, I want to um, address the sustainability issue again from maybe not a fundraising standpoint, but certainly a, a consistency and an attendance standpoint. But we heard so many amazing ideas for programs that are clearly working. And, but, and yet we're still, many of us, it seems like, are feeling somewhat flummoxed about kind of how to do the, how to get the consistency or um, or how to um, translate that into membership. And, and it sounds to me like those are the key questions. We've got these great programs. What are the things that make, that, that help people see the value in these, pro help this particular age group see the value or, or group of um, 
not the people who are we're not identifying specifically as parents and not identifying specifically as older major donors see the value. Um, and maybe that's a separate session. Any thoughts on that though? About finding ways for people to see that value? I try to always base programming on needs, wants, and expectations. And mm -hmm. so if you're not meeting someone's needs, wants, or expectations, they have no reason to become engaged. And so, you know, you mentioned the needs assessment, but it really is very critical to understand what people are going to be willing to give their time, their talent, their treasure, you know, those resources that they hold very dear. And, you know, there's not a, a catch-all for everyone because everyone is in very different places. Um, and their lives, but you know, you kind of have to at least have an idea of what people really want and need from your organization. What you can, and I think it seems to me that the make sustainable is knowing that merging that, well, this is the big Venn diagram, and merging that with uh, the content that you're good at or, or know, the things you know how to do, and then your organizational capacity to deliver, to deliver that consistently yeah. well. Yes. Those two things come together, and that sweet spot can have something they need it and, and value it. You're good at it, and you can't maintain it. And you know what your outcomes are, like what you're shooting at for that, so that you can match all those things together. So we just said needs, audience needs, wants, and expectations. This is probably, you know, this is something that we all know, but just as a reminder, audience needs, wants, and expectations, institutional expertise and institutional capacity. This is the triangle. Yeah. <coughs> and it sounds like there are a lot of people here who are doing some really great work at cracking the nut of trying to, of being, uh, being valuable to these audiences. And so the question is how to become consistently valuable the level that they then invest. Well, I, I think we want to thank you guys for coming and participating. We had um, proposed this as a round table, so when we came in and there was a horseshoe, we kind of, <laughs> we kind of, we just kind of went with it and sort of opened the discussion up a little bit more so you weren't necessarily talking in round tables. But um, thanks for coming and participating. Please keep talking to each other. Keep talking to us. And um, enjoy the rest of your conference. And if anyone would like to take pictures of, we just put these out so that the things people said were put, made visual, but so feel free to come up and take pictures or ask questions of one another. Thank you. Thank you.